0: Welcome, I'm Paul H. Curtis, and this is Be Secret and Exult, a podcast of stories about change. I have been waiting a very long time for you she said. Ours. As with so many of the things she said to me over the two years I knew her, this, the very first thing she said to me, might not have been true at all, but clearly it felt to her as though it was true, so I was obliged to treat it that way. I'm sorry, I said. My colleague could have taken a message for you. Behind her, my colleague shrugged. I tried. I tried the gesture said. I prefer to wait, she said. She was a thin woman in her 70s with long hair, a European accent, and the bearing of a dancer. She sat in a plastic chair, perfectly erect, clutching a tattered shopping bag. Her name was Mira, and she was here to ask about food assistance. I had learned by then to respect every request for help, no matter how trivial or absurd it might seem, both because each of us is the protagonist in our own story, and because everyone who came to our office was, at least potentially, a voter. My boss was the smallest of fish in the state legislature, and I was his constituent services specialist scandalously underqualified for my de facto role as a neighborhood social worker but occasionally able to get the housing department to turn your heat back on. The cases I handled varied in complexity. Some were simple, as with the woman who called to report a pigeon in her basement. Note to file, constituent agreed to suggestion that she try opening a window. Other constituents had found themselves tangled in the spider web of troubles so often spun by the combination of capitalism, bureaucracy, urban life, and inadequate mental health care. Often they were deep into their struggles by the time they reached us, furious, wounded, terrified. Some cases seemed simple but proved to be complex, and some, blessedly, were the other way around. Very often, I discovered that the problem a given constituent had brought to me was not necessarily the problem she most urgently needed to address. I offered Mira my help with an application for food stamps and gave her some information about local food banks, but it was clear already that she was too proud to make use of any of these resources. Only when she came back to me, and back again and again, at least once a week she came or she called, was I able to begin piecing together what was driving her to seek help. The process was all the more difficult because help, as I was used to thinking of it, was maybe what she needed, but it was not what she wanted. Protagonist, though each of us may be, we rarely tell our stories in a linear way, We narrate them to others in fragments, out of order, with odd bits emphasized, and important truths, whole chapters even, disguised as passing remarks or verbal ticks. Over time, I learned that Mira was Czech, that she had come to the United States as a young woman after the Second World War, that for years she had worked as the assistant to a powerful man whose name and business I don't remember, and that since her retirement and his death— She had scraped together a living on Social Security and odd jobs she performed for the Czech consulate. Sometimes I wished I had been her contemporary. We might have been friends. She was clever and cosmopolitan, and when she permitted herself to be, quite witty. She could talk about dance and art, and though it seemed her professional life had been constrained by the heavier patriarchy of her generation, the vividness with which she had once lived her life sometimes shone through. Sometimes over the phone, she would slip into reminiscences of her young adulthood in another New York, a city known only to those who had discovered it before the age of gentrification, and known to the rest of us as myth, a riskier, somehow more glamorous place, a city defined by a creative tension between the social constraints of an earlier generation and the sense of possibility which threatened, which offered to sweep it all away. I was very busy then, she said to me once or twice, and though it was never entirely clear to me, which specific scenes from the past she had in mind when she said this. I understood that what she meant on the broader level was that she had been busy living. But now, in her 70s, in a very different New York City, she had found that simply living did not come so easily anymore. My professional responsibility was to identify a problem and a solution, And over the course of our conversations, I discovered that Mira had a housing problem. In New York City, nearly everyone has a housing problem, but Mira's was acute. She was living on her meager fixed income in a market-rate Upper East Side apartment, which made her ineligible for any of the already inadequate forms of housing assistance available to low-income elderly people. She was months behind in her rent and fending off eviction by sending in every penny she had, still nowhere near what she owed. What she needed was another place to live, but what she wanted was for me somehow to persuade her landlord to leave her be. "'Tell them,' she said to me. "'You will be able to tell them.' "'I can't just tell them,' I said. "'We need to find a solution.' I know you will be able to tell them. You should know, before I go any further, that this is a difficult story for me to tell. It is difficult for me to think very much about Mira. It was difficult for me even then. Mira was sweet and vulnerable and manipulative and All of these attributes made even more painful my growing sense that I could never give her what she needed, or at least what she wanted. Though I think, despite what I've been saying to you, that perhaps one's needs and wants so far apart in childhood begin to converge as one grows old. With so little time left on earth, why does it matter which is which? It came to feel as though... I had been assigned the burden of responsibility for Mira's misfortunes. Not necessarily the blame, but one of the troubles with guilt is that it does not distinguish between blame and responsibility. And once it has sunk its teeth into a relationship, guilt does not easily let go. It chews away the agency and autonomy and objectivity that a healthy relationship requires of each party. It devours the relationship in ways as grimly satisfying for the victim as they are traumatic for the supposed victimizer. The guilty feelings which make it so difficult for me to think about Mira, even all these years later, stem in part from a sense that I did very little for her. But the truth is that I did everything I could. I found someone to declutter her apartment, free of charge, to reduce her eviction risk. I found senior housing options, some of them even with waiting list periods measured in months rather than in years, which could be paid for out of her social security income. I was on the phone with her landlord's office nearly every week, pleading, bargaining, cajoling, sometimes even threatening them, holding them off, buying Mira time. I looped through periodic, circular conversations with Adult Protective Services. I even, after more than a year, discovered a son she had never mentioned to me. He lived in Pennsylvania and did not care to speak with her, but I managed to get his commitment to a level of financial support, at least once we had been able to find a more suitable place for her to live. So why does it feel to me that I did not do very much for Mira? Why is it that what I most remember about her is nearly two years of frustration, of nothing fundamentally changing, of dreading her phone calls, her complaints that no one was helping her, and her assurances that she still had faith in me, the implied expectation that somehow I could make the world be something other than what it is? Why does it feel as though all of that time amounted to a single breathless fermata. I think it is because Mira did not want movement, or at least not forward movement. Only in our long conversations, in those ticks and passing remarks, in fond reminiscences of her passed away boss and of the woman she'd been during her time working for him, only in the course of all this did what she wanted become apparent to me. She wanted to be able to be herself, the educated, independent woman from Prague who had survived the war and come to America and made it on her own. She didn't want to move. She didn't want to be elderly. She didn't want assisted living in any sense. She didn't want to be surrounded by seniors. She often complained to me about old people. They were lifeless and pathetic, she said. She didn't want to involve her son. She wanted me to help her freeze time at a point already past. One Monday morning, I learned from her landlord that Mira had been found by a maintenance worker on the floor of her apartment, having spent the whole weekend there after a collapse. Shortly after this, at Mira's request, the landlord allowed me into her apartment so that I could pick up a few items and bring them to her at the hospital. It was such a little place, this last stronghold of Mira's independence. It made me angry that the market wanted so much from her for such a little place, such a plain place, with two little rooms and a tiny kitchen, with so few windows to let the light in. What an injustice it was, I thought, that she had been obliged to struggle as she had in defense of so modest a home in the world. Her decorations were sparse, a few spindly plants, a certificate of appreciation from the Czech consulate, a couple of framed photographs I couldn't bring myself to look at. Whatever clutter she had once accumulated was gone, and it didn't seem that she had it in her to collect any more. I watered the plants, gathered up the items she had asked me for, and went to the hospital. Always, Mira had been frayed, but elegant. She had kept herself carefully put together. And so it felt almost indecent to see her in a bed wearing a hospital gown, clothing perfectly engineered both to lay bare a person's vulnerability and to strip her of her individuality. She was pale, and in the colorless light her hair looked thinner, but she had retained her poise. She reclined in the bed as though it was a favor she was doing for some admirer. When I entered, she smiled at me. You needn't have come, she said. You asked me to, I said, but it's no trouble. Of course it isn't any trouble, but you needn't have come in any case. I won't be here long. She didn't thank me for bringing her things, but she complained about not having had them, which I knew was her way of thanking me. The real indecency for each of us was our mutual exposure to the fact of time's progress. Neither of us could deny that since our first meeting she had grown frailer and we had come no closer to resolving her housing troubles. I didn't press the point there in the hospital, but some weeks after her release, she agreed to accept a place in an assisted living facility. It looked like a very nice building, not in the neighborhood, but only on the other side of the park, across the street from the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, but it was filled with the old people she feared so much. It was not an easy thing for her to do, but she went because somehow I convinced her that there was no alternative. Her landlords, glad to be rid of her, forgave her considerable debt. She no longer called me every week. There was nothing more for me to do for her. A friend once asked me whether I had come to feel so guilty over Mira because I had projected onto her my feelings about some other relationship, something more personal, Maybe when I saw Mira, I saw my own parents. Maybe I was feeling anxious and preemptively guilty about the role I would one day have to play in their lives. Maybe it was something like that, I said, but I never saw my parents in Mira. I think, in fact, I saw myself. I saw that just as I could not protect Mira from the realities of time, neither could I protect myself that one day I would be the one to say I was so busy then, that one day my own idea of myself would come hopelessly into conflict with the realities of my body and the changes in the world around me. Two months after she moved, just before I left that job, Mira invited me to visit her. When I arrived, she was sitting on her bed, sweet and grouchy, and finally resigned to her situation. We chatted for a little while about the building and other things. She complained a bit about the other residents, but by her standards, the complaints were a little pro forma. And then I went back out into the late summer morning. There wasn't any closure or sense of satisfaction. I had helped her in the most rational way I could, but crossing under the shadow of the cathedral, that grand unfinished work consecrated to the revelator, I could not escape the feeling that I had been the antagonist in a terrible final chapter of her life, a herald of the Grim Reaper maybe, or maybe something worse than that, the person who had helped her cease to be herself." Past the portal of paradise I walked, angling for the park. Thank you for listening, and good night.